0: you're listening to the owner build podcast where each week paul hemming from sealink interviews experts on how small and medium-sized developers can level up their business through intelligent construction management
1: Hello and welcome to episode nineteen of the Owner Build Podcast with me, Paul Herring and Liam Curley. How are you today, Liam? Yeah, I'm good,
0: thanks, Paul. How are you?
1: You been to the uh, pub? Uh, unfortunately, I, I probably went to the pub a, a few too many times over the weekend, so uh, I am feeling a little bit worse for wear today. You can probably tell with my my throat is even a bit sore. Lots of uh, shouting and having fun with my friends. Yeah. What about what about you, Liam?
0: What for a non-alcoholic lager? No, whatever you,
1: whatever you, didn't. whatever you do for fun.
0: Yeah, I went this morning, but uh, no, not. On that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just getting out into Spoons, nine a.m. A, <laughs> <stuff, laughs> <lovely stuff. laughs> a
0: pinter with a with a bacon sandwich. Yeah,
1: indeed. Yeah, talking of bacon sandwiches, talking of pies. Even how are you, Jason? You are our favourite pie eater. <laughs>
2: I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, we're out for pies tonight. Hopefully, we're going to our. Local pub table booked at six o'clock, so we're looking forward to that. First time in six months.
1: And has the um, has the games room been properly christened now, Jason?
2: I think we've just got everything as we wanted now. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, so it's getting there. I've got ground workers outside just landscaping, pool, majestically uh, smoothing parts of the Hampshire countryside for this. So.
1: <laughs> Can't ask for more than that, can you? Excellent. So today. Our episode is about uh, variations and loss of profit. So for, for everyone who is who is new to the podcast or is rejoining us, just a reminder of uh, who Jason is. So Jason is our favourite commercial guru, and he is a adjudicator and CDR accredited mediator from commercial risk management. I have to say, I always find it a mouthful to say CEDR. It's just not an, a simple acronym, is it? But anyway, it's great to have you back here, Jason.
2: Well, well they call it Cedar.
1: Cedar, you see, you know, you love to make a fool of me, don't you, Jason?
2: Well, if you just asked me, I said it is it's Cedar.
1: I mean, I knew that, Paul. It's not like a, Liam definitely, I could see from Liam's smirk that he, he didn't know that, but he's happy about it regardless. So, all right, Cedar accredited mediator. I feel awful, but we'll move, we'll move, we'll move on from that, guys. So, so, this episode, we're going to do what we do uh, sometimes jason with you where we create a situation and debate how different par- parties should act so the situation is this and bear with me it's a bit of a long one but so i am a main contractor working on jct three million pound lump sum contract my client who is a property developer has just told me that they are looking to a- amend an element of the works and they have issued an instruction to omit all of the m e the works are not being changed; they're just being done by someone else. And of in, in total, they're valued at about three hundred thousand, including thirty thousand pounds of profit. I'm working to a ten percent margin. I'm pretty annoyed about this, as you can imagine. Can they do this? How? Like, no. So, so, talk talk to me about that.
2: It's. I mean, that's a straightforward breach. Because they've contracted with you to do that work. It's not as if they've said, oh, well, actually, we're going to change from having a, say, mechanical system of heating and we're going to do, you know, a a different methodology. They've just said, oh, well, we can get it done cheaper somewhere else. So we're going to take it off you and give it to somebody different because we'll save a few quid. That's just a breach of contract. And they, they can't do that. You know, it's it's not anything other than trying to avoid paying you what they've contracted to pay you. So, but they have done it. But they have done it. Well, that's. I mean, it's not a very good start in the contract, though, is it? But it, it's. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, you you're right, and it's um, perhaps the example of such a big chunk, and the M and E is like a quite shocking one, and maybe this happens more generally on like more smaller discrete packages, but the principle is the same, right?
2: I, I, the principle is exactly the same. I mean, I've come across it quite a number of times where, you know, people think that staircases for some reason, they'll omit staircases and say so get a joinery firm to do them. But well, M&E is the same. It's so into, integral to the project that if you, if you were to say, all right, fine, I'll allow you to do that. I'll agree to you doing that. But if I get delayed by your contractor coming in to do the M&E, then you'll have to pay me for delays and compensation. So it's one of these really foolish, short-sighted moves that you might think you're going to save a little bit, but in the long run, you'll probably end up paying just as much, and if not more, besides having, um, you know, giving somebody a straightforward um, right of action against you for breach of contract. So.
1: And, and, and so my understanding of this is, so the contract is $3 million and it's a lump sum, which means that... I effectively have to I've agreed to do all of the works for 3 million pounds whatever whatever is described in the drawings and the scope of work is what I'm down to do doesn't matter if the M&E I've got more profit in than in the dry lining or whatever I've agreed to do it for 3 million it's a lump sum final you can't touch it but they they have so what what would I do
2: what would you do well you could start off with adjudicating for that breach and and claiming your profit this is where it starts to get difficult because you need to be able to demonstrate quite clearly what profit you would have earned had you done it. And so, your tender workbook, what well, you know, different companies have different terminologies for them, but to be able to say what, what the price was, the actual cost that you're going to pay, and where your profit is, whether you have any risk pots or anything like that, you'd need to be able to demonstrate that you, you could actually have earned that profit if you say had bid three million pounds for a job but day one your prime cost the cost of doing the works is going to be 3.1 and you had to make buying gains to get back to your three million pounds and make some profit then you would start um to, to run into difficulties demonstrating that you'd actually lost something so can i
0: sorry can i just ask a question just just back to the route uh, initially because Jason mentioned about, he's had examples where it was with the staircase and finding a joiner, a different joining firm to do that.
2: Why Why would they do that? Why would the client do that? Well, For, for something like, um, say, a staircase, a bespoke staircase, they, they might do it because they've seen some work that's been done that's of a quality or a style that they particularly like. And, and with something like a staircase, you're going to see it all the while that you're enjoying the building that you're living in. I mean, not not so much with um, M&E, you know, most of that's hidden behind walls and what have you. But if you had a bespoke joinery piece, you might want to say, I want that company to do it. But you could do it differently from taking it out of Paul's package and giving it to your joinery firm. You could have provided for that in the first instance when you procured it. It's like a lot of things we've talked about, Paul. You know, you, you've got to decide what you want to do at the beginning, and then set your contract up accordingly. Because if you change halfway through, that's when you give somebody a the right of action against you, and and start to get in your own way by by causing delays and chopping and changing and, and making decisions too late. You know, you need to make these uh, procurement decisions up the, up front. Does that answer your, your question? Yeah, it does.
0: Thanks, Jason. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: It's it, it's difficult,
1: isn't it? Because I have been in these situations uh, myself, actually, where someone has just omitted uh, something, and you've said you can't do that, and you you've been in the right contractually, morally, all those things, but you you can't actually stop them. Really, can you, Jason?
2: Well, no. If if they're going to do it, you, you're right, but it it's not it's not very good for the relationship if, if they're doing it right at the beginning rather than say part way through it starts to set the tone for the type of contracts and the relationship you're going to have um, which is going to be difficult if, if they could agree something with you but if they just impose a decision on you and say right fine i'm taking that home. i mean you you've got right on your side but do you want to be involved in the project like that you know you've got to
1: But you're stuck, aren't you? Because you've you've got a contract for the rest of the world. Yeah, you you
2: are stuck, but you've got a a breach. It would depend as well. In your example, you said it's like the M&E is 10% of the value. Imagine, say, for the sake of argument, it was 70% of the value. You you might then start to say, well, the nature of the contract has changed so irrevocably that you, you could try and avoid the rest of it. So, you know, it's, it's not the same job that we, we set out to do. And you've changed it. Yeah, we're not signed up to, to, to do that. And we, you've changed it so irrevocably that, you know, we'd be better off reaching an agreement and I'll walk away and you do what you want to do. You'd still have the same issue with trying to prosecute your claim for your loss of, loss of profit.
1: But, but you've, you've been involved with your business where you are executing claims on behalf of people. Let's say that on the day that I received the instruction, to say oh, we're omitting this and I ask for your, your advice and what, what would be the steps that you would take? Would it be to write a letter and say expressly you can't do this so don't do it?
2: Yep, in the first instance you say well set out your rights under the contract and say you actually breach your rights, you're not permitted to do this and if you proceed in on that course of action then you will need to compensate me for my loss of profit. And if they just say, yeah, yeah, Paul, I've heard all this before from you, I'm doing it anyway, then you, you could either adjudicate or um, go and get a solicitor to um, to start proceedings and, and prosecute it that way.
1: But then even if I adjudicate, someone's going to, the adjudicator is going to try and there's going to be an assessment on the amount of profit I would have theoretically had in. And so, again, it always just feels a little bit like when you're, not the client in a construction contract. You're on You're on the source side of everything, right? Because even if I say, no, I'm I'm right, you're wrong, and then I go to the adjudicator and do all these bits and pieces, and in my example, we've got £30,000 of profit, I've still got to fight tooth and nail to evidence that.
2: That, that is the thing, Paul, because I'm, I've i got one now. I'm, I'm looking at a loss and expense claim that has come forward on adjudication. And... What what it falls down on is actual proof of a loss, and it's the same with if you haven't got tenders that you've received from subcontractors that would show that you could get that work done for two hundred and seventy thousand pounds, and you've got an analysis of your tender sum that shows well you've got a ten percent um, markup, and it's there, not not a you know, still to be earned through buying gains and all this sort of thing, but it's an actual sum of money that you would collect through the interim payment um, regime, that will send you in far more uh, positive um, position than if you're saying, well, speculatively, I know I could have made it, but I had to do a lot of things to get it. So it is, the proof is always the thing.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, but still that it it does answer my my initial question is, can I apply for the loss of profit? Am I in the right? Yes, I am in the right. And they can't just omit my works. They can change it, but they can't just omit it. And I am entitled to claim for loss of profit, but I am going to have to go through the process of proving that, but that's fine because I know I could have made 30,000 pounds profit on that. So that's good. So, in the second half, I want to ask you another question, but we'll come back to that just after this break.
0: I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share a message from our sponsor, C-Link. C-Link is software designed to streamline the process of subcontract procurement. It's a platform that helps SME developers and main contractors stay agile whilst replicating the commercial scale and savvy of large contractors. If you want to save a guaranteed minimum 5% against budget construction costs on your next project, head to www.get.c-link.com slash podcast to find out more. If you're driving or working out right now and didn't catch that URL, don't sweat it. We've included the link in the description box for this episode. Now let's get back to the show.
1: So I'm gonna take the high, high road here. I've said you can't do it, they've gone ahead and they've done it, but I've claimed my loss of profit and everything, everything is principally accepted. So I've, I've managed to do all the hard work, that's all good. Now, a silly argument I once heard on loss of profit was that, so if you remember my example, this, you've removed 300,000 pounds, which was the m and and therefore I've lost 30,000 pounds of profit. I heard an argument once, which was, but you've also got £300,000 of extra variations from other parts of the project, and therefore it's balanced out and you haven't lost anything. And I remember thinking, come on, that has has nothing to do with the process that we're going through on this specific M&E item. And the client at the time was relentless on the fact that we actually hadn't lost any profit. Now, I kind of understand his point, but but at the same time I didn't agree with it. How, how How would you react to something like that, Jason?
2: The contract is a lump sum, the JCT, the contract you're referring to, it is a lump sum contract, but it's got a facility for variations. And so the contract envisages that either there will be reductions or additions to the works. It's interesting if you had a legitimate reduction in the value of works, your profit would drop off and that's a contracting risk. You you, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it. You'd, you'd admit here the at the, at the bill rates. But I, I think it's it's a weak argument on the part of the employer that you're not entitled to recover profit on additional works that it asks you to do. Um, and all the other things. I mean, if it, if it were to delay you, then you'd be starting to look at prolongation and other costs that they would, have I mean they they don't have to vary the works they could wait until you've completed your original contract works and get somebody else to do the variations if it's the fact that they're trying to say well we're only going to provide you with x amount of profit and you're not entitled to a penny more that they've got choices they could they could elect to do it after you'd completed. But no, I I wouldn't have much um, sympathy for somebody that says, "Well, I've I've taken it away from there, but I've given it back there." So you, you you're the same as you were before. No, uh, not it's it's one of them playground type arguments with a scales, but it, it's not a contractual argument that would hold much water for very long. I wouldn't think.
1: Excellent. I feel better now. I feel better. And and so and so so we're going to do what Liam likes to do in life, which is take an argument and flip it. So in in the second half, we've we've talked about what the main contractor should have done, but what actually should the client have done, right? So in my example, where they awarded a lump sum contract, but clearly wanted to do something with the M&E, where they were worried about some, I don't know, you could argue there's some bespoke M&E, there's audio visual, they wanted to give it to a specialist. What should they have actually done?
2: In the first instance, they could have put a provisional sum in there, and said that they were going to select the contractor, but you would still be entitled to some sort of mark- markup on it. Um, they could have said the old fashioned term was to say, artists and tradesmen. And under the modern contracts, it's called works that don't form part of the contract. So these are the employer's direct works. But, but the difficulty you've got with that is as a main contractor, you you would be entitled to say right, um, if they affect the progress of the rest of the works, then, then that is a, a, an act of prevention by the employer. Yeah, you, you'd have to uh, take into account. So if if I'm wanting to close off petitions and your directly employed M&E contractor hasn't put all the services in, then you know that delay will be yours, not anybody else's. And you'd also be entitled to uh, recover special and general attendances on those direct works. So, you know, if you had to pop a birdcage scaffold, say, for the employer's um, M&E contractor, you'd be able to recover the cost of that. And if there, there were other things that they needed, so that is one way of doing it. But it, it's unless it is something that's really the typical example is, say, data cabling. Quite often, you will get an employer that has a direct contractor for data cabling, and that's because that is bespoke to their systems. And they might say want to link into other buildings that they've got in other parts of the country, or around the world, or something, or that they've got sensitivities around industrial espionage, data privacy, or that sort of thing, or they just have an in-house capability that does their, their data installations. So that, that that's an example where you might say the employer would rather get their people to do it than ask you um, to do it. So th- there are there are ways and means where they can get them the works done by the contractor that they want without necessarily breaching the contract, but it does mean forward planning
1: yeah, so it, it means forward planning, you can't on a whim actually start to think in your other example, Jason, oh, I've, I've seen this amazing uh, feature staircase in another building, and I know who did it, I, I actually want that for my building, because it'll be, it'll be a big feature. And so I'm just going to tell the contractor, I'm not going to use it, could I have said, like preferred supplier, preferred subcontractor, could I have that written in to the specification? Is that something that I could do? How, how would I manage that?
2: You could singly specify something, but if it's part of the main contractor's works, you would still be employed uh, entitled to some profit on top of it. If, if your motive is to reduce the cost of the job by going direct, then you you, you know you, you could say work's not forming part of the contract. I mean, if I were the employer, in, in your instance, with, with the omission, and they've decided that they would rather go to somebody cheaper, I think what I'd be doing is coming to you and rather than imposing it on you, I'd be saying, look, Paul, can we agree that I can omit this? I, I don't mind contributing to some of your profit, but to be honest, I think you've got too much money in for it or something of that sort. But you would start, I think, rather than imposing it, you know, carte blanche, I've taken it out and, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. I think opening a dialogue and saying look i want to do things differently but let's say you're not in a strong position you should have done this thinking about how you're going to do it before you contracted
1: it does sound like a, a stupid scenario right but i have quite recently seen uh, someone get into a million pound ish uh, contract and then on day two or three the employer started saying actually you know what i'm going to do the paint and decorate, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And the guy was like, how, "How? how is this even possible? We've literally just, we've just agreed to a lump sum. These aren't, it's not a wish list. This is my one million pounds to do the job for. You can't now just say, actually, I'll do this, that, and the other. But it does seem to be, and this is perhaps, Jason, because as I was saying in the first part, that it's weighted to, in the developer's favor that... Even if you do say you can't do that contractually, they, they, in many cases, will have the confidence to go and do it anyway. Which is why I was asking what what could be done differently. But it doesn't sound like there is huge amounts you can do other than take the moral and contractual high ground and say you can't do this, and I'm going to go for the loss of profit. But the reality is, they can still go ahead and tweak things, can't they?
2: Yeah, but you are starting to get into a breakdown of a relationship straight from the off, aren't you? And and you know that that's it's not going to be a smooth running contract for anybody. It would be a different scenario if say you weren't performing, and then it might be say well look you know you you're you're not placing the contracts you're not doing this. You, is it something that we could start to? But you're into a different scenario. You know if there's no other reason than they just think well I can get it done cheaper somewhere else. It's a straightforward breach.
1: That is effectively the reasoning, isn't it, behind all all this? It's it, it, it's it's money driven.
2: I mean, I've been involved in a number of distressed projects where people have started to cherry pick the things that they want to take out, and you might be saving a few pounds here, but by the time they have messed with the the sequence and taken control back from the main contractor it starts to cost more than it would have done if they'd left it there for the main contractor to manage it and coordinate it in the first place. So
1: Yeah, particularly if you're then exposing yourself to the delay and disruption and the responsibility for the timing around it. The whole point of giving it to a single main contractor is that you are handing off that responsibility. So is that something that you want to take on? But yeah, in, in many cases, it does seem like we, I, I still see it happen quite regularly. I tell because- you what, it
2: happens a lot is in Mr. and Mrs. Clients, you know, where, where somebody is building for an end user and again, picking up um, Liam's ex- um, question earlier on, that, that's where somebody is going to live in the house and every decision is personal to them because they're going to be looking at that you know, for, for years to come. And, and those sorts of situations are particularly prevalent in those types of contracts it's a matter of how do you manage somebody who, because individuals who've developed their own housing, especially sizeable ones, that they normally make their money because they're good at what they do. And um, you know, in my experience, rich people are rich because they don't like spending money, but. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so th- th- those sorts of contracts are fraught with, with these sorts of problems. Um, that's why it, it's, it's always useful to have a contract administrator so that at least you've got somebody who's there ostensibly to manage the project properly to act between the employer and, and the contractor
1: okay and so in in short if i am the contractor i am entitled to apply for loss of profit and i am entitled to say this is a lump sum contract and you can't do this I know I then have to go through the process of getting that all approved and and evidencing my case, but I I can do that. A good tactic as a contractor at the same time is to say, um, I'm entitled to all the loss of profit, and by the way, if you do this, um, and there's any delays or any implication as such from your chosen contractor, that will then entitle me to an extension of time, delay and disruption, which would be a further reason for the developer not to do it. If you are, on the other hand, the developer, uh, and you do want to have more control over the design of certain aspects, whether it's a, the M&E, whether it's a staircase, whatever it is. Then your advice, agent, is you very much need to think about that at the outset, and you need to be very specific about that at the outset, i.e., by having it as a preferred subcontractor, preferred supplier in the spec, or something, or by having it as a direct works. And if you do all of that-
2: Direct direct work's not falling part of the contract. Okay,
1: and and really your advice to the developer is, for the sake of 30,000 pounds of profit, are you sure you want to take on all of this risk? Because if you delay the main contractor, or if the M&E contractor delays the main contractor by two, three, four weeks, which is not impossible, guess what? All of that 30,000 pounds is quickly gobbled up and it's not worth your time.
2: Yeah, exactly that.
1: Yeah, I was going
0: to say as well, I think also we've spoken about due diligence uh, many times on podcast from the perspective of the client. But also from the perspective of the contractor, you need to perform your due diligence on who you're going to work for. And as with any, if you're in a B2B and you're selling professional services, which effectively you kind of are as a contractor. You need to decide what type of client you want to work for. And you need to be geared up towards that. Because Jason mentioned Mr. and Mrs. Contract Administrator. And so if you do get, you know, am I working for a Mr. and Mrs.? I need to be geared up towards that. I need to make sure I need to accept that these kind of challenges are going to happen. Or if I have a problem project, I need to look back at that project and say, What were the warning signs here? What could I have picked up early on and then implement that into my next round of due diligence for future projects to say, they didn't have a contract administrator. I'm not working with another client that doesn't have the contract, just as an example, that doesn't have a contracts administrator.
2: You're bang on right, Liam. One thing, I mean... An early warning sign might be somebody, you put in a tender for a piece of work and say you put in a bid for this job and it was 3.5 million and the employer says, well, I've got 3 million pounds to spend, so let's look and see where we can save it. And they start to pull out things that you know that they're going to need. And you say, well, never in a million years. And and that those sorts of signs might indicate to you, say, well, actually, I'm not sure I want to get into contract with these people because I know... From start to finish, I'm going to be fighting tooth and nail for every penny. And they've only got £3 million to spend in any case. You know, and it's no good. Once you spend a penny over 3000000 quid. million, you're spending your money, not theirs. Because you're, you're going to have to fight to get it back.
1: I also think that's a really, really good point that Liam makes about all... Also- also, if it, depending on who the client is, and we're probably laboring the point here, but if it is Mr. and Mrs., you do have to have a slightly different mentality and think that need, that project has to have a slightly different resource because we're going to have to be a little bit more commercially savvy or we're going to have to approach it slightly different. Maybe you have a bigger profit margin in it. Maybe you declare the profit margin. I don't know. But there's there's, there's things that you can do, right?
2: Escrow accounts is one thing that springs to mind because on, on projects of that type, one of the common themes is late or non payments, especially as you get through. So, as a contractor, if you're going into contract with that sort of client, you'd be saying, Right, fine, I want to have two months' valuation monies put into an escrow account and maintained until we've completed. And if you deplete that, it's a breach and we can suspend straight away. And um, that, that, that sort of thing to, to give you. The protection because I, I see that an awful lot where contractors have tried to get practical completion the employer's not doing it because he hasn't got the money to pay the retention or to pay the, the final payment because they've run out of funds and you see that quite commonly.
1: Perhaps a, uh, a uh, conversation uh, for, for another day uh, on that one Jason it does sound like it's uh, quite quite interesting one but I, th- I, th- I think we've um unpack that quite well and i think there is some takeaway points there for all of our listeners and the number one takeaway point for me anyway is that it's not cedr it's cedar and I, <laughs> I, have to, I have to take that away and just analyze everything that i've done up to this point so there we go but yeah, that's uh, that was really really good have you got anything else liam
0: i haven't that was great
1: Excellent. Well, look, thanks Jason and we will uh, we will see you next time, I'm sure.
2: No problem. Thanks Paul. Thanks, Paul. Go and go
1: and enjoy that pub dinner. Take care.